0: My name is Alyssa Robinson, and you're listening to The TREACH Podcast. Jacob Zachariah is my guest today, and he has lots of experience with burnout, which is a mental health strain most of us are familiar with. As a prosecutor in Dallas County's Crimes Against Children division, his work has extra pressures and stress that many of us don't experience. But also, as an Indian American, he has experienced burnout as always being seen as quote, other, in a majority white culture. I hope you enjoy his perspective. And remember, you can check out more mental health resources at tmumc.org slash wellness.
1: So Jacob, one of the things you told us in the roundtable is that your job has been a source of burnout in the past. Can you give us a little insight into what you do and, and what is it that's so challenging about your job? And leads to burnout.
2: So I am a prosecutor for the Dallas County District Attorney's Office, um, specifically in the Crimes Against Children Division. I have been in this division for two, almost two and a half years now. Um, so I work every single case uh, that comes to the 283rd Judicial District Court and the 363rd Judicial District Court. So out of the 17 courts in Dallas County, I handle every child abuse case in two of them. It can be really tough every day to you know, hear about all the children that have been abused and harmed in various ways, um, whether it's physical abuse or sexual abuse, I handle both of those kinds of cases. Um, generally I'm handling sexual abuse cases more than the physical abuse, um, and it is a taxing thing to read police report after police report, watch video after video. Um, hearing these kids tell their stories about what happened to them and tell how it is that they have come to be names that I now have to know.
1: What kind of impact has that had on your mental health in the past?
2: Uh, I think that people who care for me would say that it is, I hope that people who care about me don't notice it too much. I'll put it that way. I try to not let the world see it and I try to keep it to myself and my loved ones. Um, I would say my loved ones definitely get a brunt of it because I can be short-tempered with them um, a little bit more than I would have been not working.
1: Do you think that's a good thing that you're able to hide it from people outside of your loved ones and family?
2: I talk to a lot of people any given day. Uh, no one wants to hear how my day is going if, as soon as I tell them that I work in the Crimes Against Children division. Everyone has, usually it's one of two reactions. One is, oh man, I don't know how you can do what you do, which sort of makes me think that I have some sort of you know, messed up personality to where I'm able to do it. And the other perspective is, thank you for what you do. And I don't know how to handle the thank you for what you do either because to me, I have to still see it as a job. Um, Because if I see it as more than that, then I lose perspective on what it is I'm actually doing.
1: Can you say more about that?
2: Sure. If I, by taking thank yous, um, so like generally like you say thank you for someone who brings you water or, you know, makes food for you or, you know, does something nice for you. A service. A service, right? Uh, I don't, it, for me, for me, hearing a thank you for that means that I am getting something out of it that is not what I'm supposed to be doing. What I'm supposed to be doing is just seeking justice, whatever it is for whoever it is. Now, not everyone's going to be happy with what happens every time, but I have to go into it thinking what is the most just thing to do in this situation based on all the facts that are in front of me.
1: Well, and I think that a lot of us and me too, when we first started talking about this are under the assumption that you are an advocate for the victim as a prosecutor. And that's not exactly your role. Your role is to get justice for the state of Texas, right?
2: Right. So it is not, you know, you know, victim A versus defendant B. That's not what the case is. It is the state of Texas versus the defendant, whoever it is. Um, I am not the lawyer for the victim. I have someone who works with me who is a victim advocate who my who does work for the Dallas DA's office. And that victim advocate does tell me, hey, this is what the victim wants. This is what needs to happen in this case. But ultimately, you know, it's not my victim advocate's name on the case. It's, it's ultimately my name that's going to be signed on the plea document or conviction or dismissal, whichever way it's going to go.
1: So that's a lot of pressure, I would say, on you. Do you feel that pressure? Or do you put some pressure on yourself? Are you receiving it from other people?
2: I, I would say all of the above. I get pressure... I definitely feel a lot of the pressure, um, especially because, you know, it is innocent little kids most of the time who I'm dealing with. Um, so I have put that pressure on myself to really look at the case and figure out what it is that I'm doing because I have these kids' lives in my hands and I have these people's lives in my hands where their liberty can be taken from them if I make the wrong decision. Um, so there's that pressure. Then there's also the external pressures of the job itself, right? You've got a defense attorney who wants what's best for his client, you've got a judge who wants what's best for her docket. And ultimately, it comes down to me to decide what I can and cannot do, looking at all the facts I have in the case.
1: So with all of this in mind, heading into 2020, uh, you talked about you know being in the middle of burnout, going through all of this, and then the pandemic hits, and everything shuts down, and what that means for you is no trials uh, because we can't call a jury to come together and so for a lot of other people 2020 was just so much added stress and pressure and for you it felt like a little break from all of it what did that feel like in that transition
2: so what i would say on that is from so march twelfth, 2020 was the last day of a jury trial in dallas county because i think march 17th is what i think when everything shut down so march 12th i was in a jury trial and that was my 26th jury trial in the last year which i don't know um how much you know about the legal field but generally if you're trying somewhere between five and ten cases that's a lot of cases so 26, in one year in one year yes so 26 cases in a year was a lot um that that being the case going from you know basically trying a case every other week to you know being working remotely um and working from home where i can't be in a jury trial where it's much more difficult to resolve my cases um it was a giant shift in my job responsibilities and duties i guess i would say
1: so what did that do for your mental health over the past year
2: um I guess it was twofold. One, I definitely had a sigh of relief because I remember in March of 2020, I was getting burned out and I was like, I don't know how many more back-to-back trials I can do. Um, but as as the pandemic um, hit and as the shutdown got put in place, my m- mindset went from, I have to get ready for the next trial. I have to get ready for the next trial to, okay, let me get some time and look at my cases and see what what's actually happening on these cases and do some other background investigation that I generally just never would have time for. Um, that's the positive aspect. The negative aspect is normally my caseload would be somewhere between 85 to 100 cases. You know That has now doubled. I have twice as many cases as I did before because all of my cases resolve themselves via jury trial for the most part.
1: And we'll get to you know the feeling of what you have looming in front of you as we know trials are about to start up again. Uh, but before that, uh, we've been talking a lot about career burnout, but it's not just career burnout that you experienced within the past year. And so could you talk to me a little bit about through 2020 and 2021, what was some of that outlying burnout that you felt over the year?
2: I, so I'm an Indian man and I, um, growing up in Houston, Texas, I have um, a lot of friends uh, who were black and who were other people of color, but most of my friends who um, were people, or Indian people, like me, growing up, like we went through the same stuff. Where we get a lot of um, comments thrown at us that are not necessarily comments you throw at every other white person that's on the street. And so, when the George Floyd stuff hit the news, and when we had this groundswell of support for Black Lives Matter protests. I personally felt um, engaged in that because I felt finally there was a voice that was speaking up from the crowd that was for people of color, um, that was speaking out for every frustration I felt. You know, going through high school, being told do the Apu accent from The Simpsons. You know, that kind of mentality. Um, was never really like no one really ever addressed it with me. It was just a common thing like, Oh, do an Indian accent, do an Indian accent. Like I am born and raised in Houston. I do not have an Indian accent, but you know, yeah, I know people who do. And so I have heard it. And because I like being funny, I would make the Indian accent. It is not something I enjoyed doing, um, in retrospect. Um, but I did like entertaining people. And so I took that opportunity with the protests though. I finally felt like I am justified in feeling like what has been going on is wrong. I felt, um, the burn of watching that man die on a video, like watching him die and call out for his mom. And I felt just so burdened by the feeling that he was feeling. Um, and I felt for him and that, that, that was It was a tough feeling because, I, I mean, I thought about my mom, right? And my mom thought about me um, being in one of those situations because I can run my mouth. And she felt that that could have been me in that situation just as easily as it could have been George. Um, and so I, watching news piece after news piece that another person of color has been killed and another one's been killed and another one, watching that protest finally hit, It's break point in in May was really, it made me happy that someone cared. It made me happy that someone cared. Mm -hmm.
1: Did you start to feel, because you're the kind of person that you really do get along with everybody. And there's a reason for that. And it's been explained to me by multiple people of color who say it's called code switching. And it's something that you have to grow up with. Learning how to adapt yourself to fit in, so that you won't be seen as other, or you won't be pointed out to in a in a in a different way, or hopefully racism won't be directed at you because you're fitting in with everyone else. And you've explained to me, uh, being a child of immigrants, the word was assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. Do you feel burnout because as a result of that, you have a ton of white friends? Do you feel burnout in having to explain to them over and over again the racism that exists in this country or why what's happening matters to you or how you see things differently? Or is that something that you take joy in being able to have those conversations? Maybe joy is not the right word, but that you want to have those conversations.
2: Um, I guess both. Um, And I'll say it this way. I I don't know that I explained racism to my white friends a lot until the last couple years. I think that that assimilate, assimilate, assimilate was something my dad literally would say to me. Like, you just have to assimilate into the culture. My mom would say that to me as I was getting older. You just have to assimilate, and they won't treat you differently if you just blend in. They won't treat you differently. And, you know, that's my dad, you know, coming to America in 1968, Um, thinking that the only thing that was different between him and everyone he was in school with and everyone he was working with was just the fact that he was from a different place. It wasn't the fact that his skin looked different. Um, And for me, I came to realize it's not that my parents are from a different place, it's that my skin looks different. I never really addressed that issue with my white friends because my white friends, my actual friends, never made me feel other, right? My actual friends never were like... Jacob, do the Indian accent. It was always casual friends or acquaintances who would be like, Jacob, do the Indian accent. My actual friends treated me like a friend, like any other person. I'm reminded of um, an interview between Morgan Freeman and Mike Wallace from 60 Minutes where Morgan Freeman is bashing Black History Month saying, I just don't want to be referred to as a black man. And I won't refer to you as a white man. Just refer to me as a man. My friend Morgan. Not... My black friend Morgan. Like, I don't want to be your Indian friend, Jacob. I just want to be your friend, Jacob. And that's how my actual friends treated me. But I would say that it's people who didn't know me that well. The one thing they could gleam off of me is, oh, he's Indian. Maybe he does an Indian accent. So I didn't really explain um, racism too much to my friends until recently when people started asking me how I feel about it and I've got a lot of feelings on it, right? I've got a lot of feelings on it, especially this past year has been really good for me to reflect on that um, and reflect on how racism has affected my life. Um, I can think, you know, I after I graduated from law school, I applied to a hundred jobs and didn't get any of them. I had maybe 12, 13 interviews. And I remember some interviews where my name is Jacob Zachariah. It's not a very Indian quote unquote Indian name. Um, And I would walk into the interview room and sit at the, sit in the lobby waiting to get called in. And they would go look at me and go, Jacob. And I was like, yes. And they're like Zachariah, as if that cannot possibly be my name. And I'm like, yes, that's my name. And then the next question almost always is, how did you get that name? From my father. Um, that's a really odd question to have to explain where your name comes from.
1: That's the first question in an interview with someone that you have never met before.
2: Right. And generally those people were um, not people of color uh, asking me those questions. Those were generally white people asking me, how'd you get your name? And then the other terrific question to always get is, where are you from? Mm. And my response is Houston, Texas. And they're like, no, but where are you from? Houston, okay, but like, where are your parents from? My parents live in Houston, no, but like from from okay they my my ethnicity, my heritage, my family is from India is that that if that's what you're asking right That's a really awkward question to have to get into, and then I almost certainly get indignant as soon as I have to go down that line.
1: what are some of the things that you wish? White people understood that would just make your life so much easier to have to stop having to answer the questions. I know another question that you often get is, uh, well, maybe not a question, an assumption. People just assume that you're Muslim because you are an Indian man living in America, and I don't know. I guess it's the assumption that most Indians that they have met are Muslim. I don't
2: even know that they're necessarily gleaning that I'm Indian. They might just be assuming. Brown-skinned Muslim.
1: Yeah. So um, so what are some of the things that you wish we as white people better understood? Because I imagine that the burnout is real, having had to answer those same questions over and over again your entire life and just begging people, see me. Like, see me as a person.
2: There is no difference between me and you just because my skin color is a different color. And the the reason I'm phrasing it that way is I have the same pains and thoughts and motivations and goals and aspirations and successes and failures that you do. I have the same um, family life that you do. Um, Maybe I don't have all the same relatives here. Some of my relatives are still in India, but I still have a grand. I still have a mother and a father and a brother and a grand and grandparents and uncles and cousins. I still have all that. I'm still the same. I'm going to school with you. I don't speak another language as my primary language. I grew up in Houston. Um, I have a twang. If if it comes out, if if I get comfortable enough, it'll come out. I, I have it. I d- I'm not different just because my skin color is brown. And so the assumption that Well, he's brown. He must also be different from me religiously. He must also um, be different from me, you know, in other ways. The thought always comes up when someone assumes that the question always is, oh, do you eat meat is the most frequent way it comes up Um, because they assume either I'm a Hindu or a Muslim, right? Um, Oh, or do you eat pork? Is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, I love bacon. I eat bacon all the time. If I could have bacon with everything, I would. And in fact, I really do argue that bacon makes everything better, but that's a side issue. Um, the sad part is, I always wear a um, gold chain that my grandmother gave to me that has a cross on the end of it. And my instinct whenever someone's like, um, do you eat meat? Or um, someone, so there's some sort of casual relationship to my religion. I pull out my chain and say, I'm Christian. I'm Christian. Like, look, here's my evidence that I'm Christian. That should not... I should not have to do that. Like, does anyone else have to pull out their necklace that shows a cross on it to say I'm Christian? No. Like, that's a ridiculous concept. That That's how I prove my Christianity is with... It's almost like a shibboleth, right? Like, that that, that is my shibboleth that I'm wearing a cross. Look at me. I'm, I'm one of you.
1: Where is the line between curiosity and ignorance of, like, someone really wanting to better understand you and your culture and there are some things that you might do a little bit differently or you might uh, speak a little bit differently or understand a little bit differently because of your life experiences and the I'll say, like, first generation American is a totally different cultural experience in the US than someone like me who literally qualifies for Daughters of the American Revolution. Like, we've been here forever, and there's certain aspects of you that you've been educating me on that I just don't understand. But where is that line between, okay, you've crossed over from genuine curiosity to pure ignorance, and you need to stop asking these questions?
2: Uh, What I would say is even if there was complete ignorance in a situation, I can you can generally see it like you can generally see it when someone's asking you a question out of complete innocent ignorance. Right. But it's when you see that it took a couple assumptions for them to get to that question. That's when I'm like, I get upset. Right. But if you're genuinely curious about me as a Christian, we're like, oh, I see you have a cross on. What faith or what denomination are you, right? What's your denomination? Then I would love to explain to you that I'm Indian Orthodox, right? That's a conversation I would love to get in, that Thomas came to India in 52 AD, and that's, we've been Christian since. Like, I love that conversation, but I don't love the, you're brown-skinned, therefore you must be Hindu or Muslim. I don't need you to make a judgment on me before you've talked to me. Just like I won't make a judgment on you before I talk to you. Like if we can agree that we won't make those kinds of assumptions about each other, we'll get a, get to a better place. And again, the the curiosity thing also. If I know you, I'm gonna be more likely to be able to share myself with you. If I don't know you, don't come up to me asking me random questions that you wouldn't ask your own family, like your own like that's that's rude.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna. Play devil's advocate here because it's my favorite role to play. Okay. And what about the argument of someone who is asking, do you eat meat or do you eat pork or whatever? Well, I'm just trying to be hospitable. And maybe they make the argument, so many people are vegan these days. I would have asked anybody. If sure. they if they if they're coming to my house for dinner, do you eat meat? Do you have any food allergies? Do you have this? Do you have that? How can you tell if it's ignorance or if it's someone trying to be hospitable
2: the way you just asked it was an innocent way right it was do you eat meat or do you eat pork not oh you eat meat oh i didn't know you eat meat or oh i didn't are you allowed to eat pork are you am i allowed to eat pork yeah i'm, I'm a human being with rights and decision making power i can i can eat pork if i want to eat pork right that's the difference it's it's the openness of your question right like if You ask a question with yourself being vulnerable, then it's different than you acting like
1: surprised when you fit an American cultural norm when you are, in fact, an American who grew up here.
2: (laughs) That's correct. Right. If if you make the assumption that I'm an American, then that question won't come up. You won't ask me, oh, do you eat pork? You're not going to think, oh, he eats pork. Your, your thought will automatically be, he eats everything I do. You can ask me, do you have any, like, because I have friends ask me, do you have any food allergies? Great, I do. I will tell you that, <laughs> right? We can get into that. Uh, I also don't like bell peppers and onions. I will tell you that too when that question comes up. But I don't, it's not, like, does anyone ask, oh, you, you eat, you don't like bell peppers and onions, right? That's not a question that people ask. But they'll ask specific questions like meat and pork. Because of like my skin color. I'm curious how many experiences you have, Alyssa, where people ask you, do you eat meat? I know you used to be vegan. but I know it's not a fair question because
1: I have a lot of people who are surprised when they see me eat meat because I was vegan for three years. So I'm not a fair person to ask. They're like, oh, you're eating meat? (laughs) And they are surprised.
2: (laughs) But for example, like someone else who I would be, I'm curious how many people actually get asked, you know. Oh, do you, you eat pork like that? You know what I mean? There's a difference between do you eat pork versus, oh, you eat pork. I just, I think that's, the you know, that's, that's a one obvious verbal cue, but there's also, you know, so many nonverbal things that come with this conversation, right? So much of the, um, unintended racism is because of assumptions and because, that surprise that you were talking about, that surprise that I'm American.
1: I think that we're getting a little fired up here. (laughs) So maybe it's not as much burnout as it is like, why don't y'all get it already? Yeah. Like just pure frustration because it sounds to me like you're going to be willing to call somebody out if they're doing these things. And depending on how comfortable you feel with the person.
2: I would also say that's a now thing versus a two years ago thing even. Right?
1: So what changed?
2: I think that this movement that happened in the last year, year and a half showed me that people actually do care. Cause before I thought it was, this is your fight alone.
1: Mm, so the burnout for you happened prior to this past year. And now seeing all of the activism come to light, you're like, there's hope here. There are people who really care.
2: There were at least 70 to 80 million people who decided that they want me in this country, that they cared enough that I be here, that they want me to be a part of the fabric of this country.
1: Well, that leads into my next question. Where are the places that you see hope for the future?
2: I think that and I'm going to bring it back to work. There was a guy recently who used to be a prosecutor in Dallas County um, and he was uh, this is, you know, 15 15 years ago was the last time he was a prosecutor in Dallas County. Um, He was disbarred by the state of Texas last week or a couple weeks ago because he intentionally hid evidence against black defendants. He intentionally hid evidence that um, would make, would have exonerated them from the crimes that they committed. And instead, they served years in prison as a result of that. What I would say is one great avenue for hope is that that's not the way our justice system is working as much anymore, Um, especially in urban places like Dallas and Houston and Austin, um, where you do have, um, you don't have the same backwards thinking people running the prosecutor's office and running. the justice system and the court system in general, you have judges who have a perspective on what happens in this world that they live in. Um, One of the judges whose court that I'm in, she ran the drug court program for Dallas County for 20 years. She knows that drug addiction is a real problem and not something that everyone needs to go to prison for. It's something that really needs to be addressed. And she understands that it's affecting people of color in a much greater proportion in the criminal justice system Than it is other people and so she understands that and tries to rectify that as well with her decisions and i think that our office and a lot of the offices um, in these urban areas are concerned with how people of color have been treated in the past and we are trying our best to not send people down that same bad path anymore Um, that's one great avenue for hope Um, another avenue for hope that i would see is in the activism growing up in the 80s and 90s i do not recall this level of activism um this is 1960s level activism that i'm seeing in this 2020 decade um, where people are really caring about the inequity in the system that their fellow man and woman are and people are going through right they care like and it's people who are privileged caring about those who are not, which is, I you know, the basic mentality of Christianity, right? It's caring about those who are less fortunate than you, who don't have every chance than you. It's, it's Jesus ministering to those who were forgotten and who were thrown aside and literally separated into a community like the lepers, right? That is Christianity. And that's what this level of activism is. It's caring about those who don't have people caring.
1: Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, you're getting ready to go back to trial and you're gearing up within the next few weeks, you're going to be in trial. How has this past year changed the way that you approach your job? Do you feel that you're coming back healthier and stronger? Or... Do you find yourself already getting back into that place of potential burnout?
2: Um, I will say that my preparation style may not be the best. Where to get amped up for a trial, I sort of do get nervous and anxious and um, stressed so that once it finally hits... I hit the ground running and I'm going smooth. Um, if I start, if I start my, I guess the, I think back when I was playing sports in college and high school, I would get angry and all of a sudden I would play harder. And so for me now it's, I get geared up for trial by overstressing about a case um and trying to look into every single detail to make sure I'm not going to get surprised by something. So I would say sadly my approach has not changed. Um I would say that my viewpoint on my cases as a whole may have changed, which is I have where before I would have 85 cases, I have something close to like 170, 180 cases now. Um it is not reasonable to think that Jacob Zachariah is going to resolve all 180 of those cases before I get taken out of the child abuse division and put into an regular court doing something else. So I have to keep my mind on helping the individual cases that I can help and letting someone else take the work up once my once my turn is done.
1: And is that different from what you felt about your job prior to the pandemic?
2: I would say that there were definitely um, some cases that I would get very heavily invested in that I'm going to resolve this case. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. This case is my case. I'm going to do it kind of thing. And I'm trying to take um, less personal stake in it and remember that my job is to seek justice as a a greater good.
1: So my last question in dealing with All of this past burnout, potentially upcoming burnout, political burnout, social burnout, racism burnout, all of the things that have happened over, let's call it the past couple of decades. (laughs) (laughs) Where does your faith have a role in all of this? How do you lean on your faith during these times?
2: So um, you and I have talked about this before where... Every Sunday I go to church and it was something for me, you know, growing up, I grew up in the church and it was a very important part of me because my dad was a priest. And so I would be in church every week. I didn't miss a service. Growing up, I made the promise to, you know, you you make all these bargains and promises with God that, hey, if you help me with this, I'll do this, right? And I made the promise that I won't miss church if you help me. And I will say that that started off as, you know, one of those bargains and promises that wasn't really useful. Um,
1: you can't bargain with God. Right. That's not really right. how it works. It's a real one-sided bargain
2: <laughs> there. <laughs> um, and it turned into, I know that I feel better on Sunday at 12 o'clock when I leave church. I know it. Like, on... You know, Friday, I'm stressed, but I'm excited it's the weekend. On Saturday, I'm excited to have my weekend, but I'm usually working on something. On Sunday morning, I get up to go to church and I'm, you know, tired, but I get up and I get going and I go to church. And Sunday afternoon at 12 o'clock is when I feel the best I feel the whole week. Um, because- Not
1: because you left the church, but because you were fed by the church. <laughs> yes, you're right, exactly. Yeah.
2: Not because it'll be another week before I have to go back, <laughs> but because it really... It makes me feel happy when I get closer to God and I am able to leave the church feeling less stressed out. Um, I will say that my faith is something that can get put aside in the week um, when I'm dealing with my stress. I know I shouldn't do it, but. I am a human and so I make mistakes and I put it aside thinking I've got to get through this I've got to get through this one I know I should be leaning um, more on God and I know my mom would definitely tell me um, you need to pray about it you need to pray about it if you got if you have to pray you'll be okay like just pray it and um, I don't always do that Um, but I do know that I would not be where I am today And I would not be able to get through what I get through every day without his help. Without God's help, there's no way that I would be able to make it through one week of work, much less a career in this um, profession.
1: I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing a little bit of yourself and a new perspective that most of us probably haven't heard before. So thanks.
0: I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this episode and all of the episodes focused on mental health in the month of May. As always, you can catch up on all podcast episodes at tmumc.org podcast.